If you will, turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. One of the reasons that sin is so offensive to God is that he's a holy God. And in chapter 32 of Exodus tonight, we have this really awful story, but very helpful and instructive account of the children of Israel forgetting the covenant that they had agreed to with God and running headlong into sin. Subject tonight is a very serious one, and yet it is also one that gives us hope because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So we look at this chapter tonight. I know we've been covering several chapters, usually on each Wednesday night, but we're slowing down a little bit now. And we're going to look at this amazing, powerful chapter from the Word of God. The title tonight is Sin and Forgiveness. We're all sinners, and aren't you grateful for forgiveness? Let's look beginning at verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, he was up on Mount Sinai, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods or a god that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them 
and I will make of you a great nation. Sin is an offense against a holy God. In these first ten verses, we see the account of the sin of the people of God. These are the folks who just came out of Egypt only a few weeks before this. They had seen the mighty works of God. They had benefited from the mighty works of God. They had heard, as Moses declared to them, the covenant of God. And they agreed. They said to the Lord on more than one occasion, we wholeheartedly will follow this covenant. And yet, Moses, being up on the mountain called Sinai for 40 days, was all it took for them to forget God and to go their own way. So what exactly happened? Well, they came to Aaron, who's Moses' brother. Aaron was the one who went with Moses in to see Pharaoh back in Egypt. He was the spokesman. He would say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. He was with Moses. He was Moses' right-hand man. And Moses gave him charge over the people while he was gone up on the mountain. And so the people know that Aaron's in charge, so they come to him and they say to him, Come, make us gods or a god that shall go before us. As for this Moses, now remember, they're talking about Aaron's brother. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Well, there's no indication here that Aaron argued with him at all. Maybe he did. Scripture doesn't say he did, so I'm assuming he didn't. They said, make us a God. Aaron says, oh, okay. I'll make you a God. So here's what it takes. It takes those gold earrings that you're wearing. Remember those gold earrings that you're wearing that you probably got from the Egyptians? Break them off, the ones that your wives are wearing, your daughters are wearing, and oh, by the way, your sons are wearing them as well. A few years ago, boys around America started wearing earrings. And I thought, that's the strangest thing ever. But it's not new, is it? All the way back here in the Bible, these folks, these men, these boys, were wearing earrings as well. Aaron says, break off the earrings and bring them to me. We'll throw them in the fire and we'll see what happens. And notice he received the gold, verse 4. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool, made a molded calf, and they said, this is your God. Now, what I believe they were saying is, this is the physical image of the God who brought us out of Egypt. They were replacing the God of glory who had led them out of Egypt and who was a, had appeared to them as a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day, they did not see an image of him, and so they made an image of him, which is in direct disobedience to one of those Ten Commandments where God said, do not make any graven image. That is, any kind of animal or beast or anything that represents what's in the heavens, the stars, or the planets, or any of that, don't make an image that you will bow down and worship in the place of me. Have no other gods before me. Do not make an image. Well, 
Here, they made an image. Not just they, but Aaron makes this image. It is a golden calf. It is a, uh, some have said it was a bull, which was often used in ancient times as a god or a representative of a god. But here, notice Aaron says, so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. So now they've got this golden calf. They want a place to put it. So they built an altar and they placed the calf there uh, right at the altar. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. See, they are substituting this golden calf, this image of a beast for the one true and living God. Point number one in your outline is this. God gets angry about idolatry. That's what they were doing. They were substituting for the real living God, this golden calf that couldn't think, couldn't see, couldn't breathe, just an image of gold. Tomorrow, he says, is a feast to the Lord. So they rose up early on the next day. Well, they were ready to go, weren't they? They got up early. They offered burnt offerings. That's what they had, had been taught to do with the tabernacle. They bought, brought peace offerings. So they are bringing these items of worship to this golden calf. And then the people sat down to eat and drink. So they had a meal. Or maybe they ate all day. They, they're eating. And then this next phrase says, and they rose up to play. That word play literally refers to sexual immorality. So can you imagine people who are so deceived or who are so into what they're doing that they believe that practicing sexual immorality is somehow a way to worship a holy God? That was what the pagans did. Now, they, pagans in that day didn't worship God, but they included all kinds of horrible sexual immoral acts in the worship of their pagan gods. But uh, if you would like to turn with me for a moment to Romans, hold your place there, and we'll turn over to Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 22. Let me read to you what Paul wrote, and he may have had this particular episode in mind as the Holy Spirit led him to write these words. But he's writing in chapter 1 of Romans about how people have exchanged God's glory for images. And he says in verse 22, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. This is whether he intentionally was referring to this particular episode or not. It is a, a, an appropriate commentary on what was going on back here in Exodus 32. They exchanged the glory of the immeasurable holiness of God for an image, a four-footed beast, a golden calf, and giving themselves over to idolatry also 
gave them the window to practice sexual immorality as well. So they sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. But God comes on the scene here in verse 7 again and says to Moses, Moses, the people down in the valley, they are not doing well. And notice how God describes them, verse 7. Your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it's a stiff-necked people. That means they're stubborn a stubborn people. Now, therefore, get out of my way that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. God was so angry over the idolatrous practices of his people that he was ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. God, it's angry about idolatry. I believe he still does. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, in the sermon, chapter 6 rather, in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon in there is a word that refers to money or wealth. People in that day, in New Testament days and before that, actually had a molded image of money called mammon that they would bow down to and worship. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and mammon. People want to do that today. I guess people always have. They want what they want, but then they want a little of God on the side as well. But Jesus said you can't do that. It's not possible to do that. If you're worshiping mammon, you cannot worship God, which means you don't have a relationship with him. So that's just one asset, uh, aspect rather of what idolatry could be it could be a worship of money. could be the worship of power or prestige or popularity. could be any number of things. What is an idol? It's anything that you love and worship and devote your life to rather than God. One of the apostles referred to it as well. The apostle John in the last verse of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21, he wrote these words, My children, keep yourselves from idols. So is it a problem for a Christian? It could be. Otherwise, John wouldn't have written it to the Christians in that era. So you and I, as human beings, as followers of Jesus, we also can be tempted to be idolaters. So beware regularly ask the Lord to reveal in your own life if there's anything that may have just creeped in on, in your life without you really realizing it, that you've put in front of the Lord. Secondly, not only does God get angry about idolatry, God responds to fervent prayer. God responds to fervent prayer. Let me let you look with me now in verses 11 through 14. 
Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Notice how Moses changed it back. God said, these are your people, Moses. Moses says, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. I didn't bring these people into existence. These are your people, Lord. I know he said it respectfully, but why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Here is Moses interceding for the people of God, going before the Lord with boldness, with humility, and with great fervor. Lord, he says, why does your wrath burn hot against these people? Moses is appealing to the character of God and to the honor of God. He says, Lord, if you destroy these people, your reputation in the world is going to go down the tank. He said, the Egyptians will say about you, all the Lord did was bring them out of Egypt so he could kill them in the wilderness. Moses is concerned about the honor, the character, and the reputation of God in the earth. When Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It ought to be the heart cry of every child of God to hear and to see the name of God held in high honor in our country, in our world. Hallowed be the name of God. We all know that there's so many people who are trashing the name of God, using his name in vain. But we of all people ought to be people who would stand up and say, let the name of God be respected and loved and hallowed in the earth. For he is worthy of honor and glory and power and dominion and majesty. For he is the one true and living God. He is, Moses is reminding now the Lord. Look at verse 13. Remember, he is reminding the Lord of the covenant. Not that God forgot, but the people forgot. In fact, I want you to turn to another place. It's in Psalm, the book of Psalms. Psalm 106. I want you to look at this because the psalmist here is giving a brief history of some of the events of of ancient Israel. And I want you to read with me, starting at verse 19, just follow along. Psalm 106 and verse 19. He is referring to this episode back in Exodus chapter 32. They made a calf in Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, and worship the molded image. Thus they changed their glory, that is God, they exchanged, God was their glory, into the image of an ox that eats grass. 
They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, chosen his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. The Bible says that God listened to the appeal to the prayer of Moses and relented. He did not do what he said earlier that he would do. Prayer does work. Prayer changes people and prayer affects God because God responds to the prayer of his people. Now, some folks say that that prayer doesn't change anything or doesn't change God in any way. God is unchangeable. I get that, that his character does not change. But there are many places in the Bible where people prayed and God did not do what he said before that he would do. And if they had not prayed, he would have gone ahead and done it. Here's one of them. He would have destroyed all of his people had not Moses stood in the gap, stood in the breach, and prayed for them. They forgot their covenant, but he is reminding God that he is a God of loyalty, of faithfulness, of love. And he says here, Moses does, you swore by your own self. There was nothing greater in the universe that God could swear by or promise by than himself. And so he called himself into account and said, this is the way I will treat you. I will bring you into this covenant and I will bless you. I will give you this land and to you and to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. The book of James says that the Effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And he gave, as an example, Elijah. Elijah prayed, and they had a drought for three and a half years. Did not rain a drop for three and a half years. Elijah prayed again, and the heavens burst open with rain. What was the difference? Elijah, whom James says is a man just like you and me, a regular human being. As we used to say when I played football, he puts his pants on one leg at a time, which simply means he's just a regular guy, just like everybody else. But he prayed. And Elijah was a man of prayer. You can be a man of prayer. You can be a woman of prayer. You can be someone just like Elijah. You can be someone just like Moses. You can be someone just like Anna in the New Testament who prayed fervently and God assured her she would not die before she saw the Lord's anointed. So prayer is always a work in progress for the Christian. I've been a Christian for most of my life. I say when I was seven years old, Didn't know a lot about it back then, but God's taught me some things over the years. And one thing he's taught me is the absolute essential nature of prayer. 
Prayer is what connects us with God on a practical basis, day by day, moment by moment. And for you and me to be people of prayer, we've got to practice it. It's, it's hard because it's spiritual warfare. It's one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing, that I do every day because the devil fights prayer. But that, that is one reason that tells us also how important it is. So Moses prays and God responds. There's a second time that Moses prays also. Look over now with me at verse 30 of this same chapter. And let's read verses 30 through 32. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin. You see that dash right there? Does your Bible have a dash right there after that word? If you will forgive their sin. That indicates that Moses was at a loss for words. He was so emotionally stirred by what he had seen, what God had commanded, the awful sin of the people. And we'll go back to this in a moment. What happened to to 3,000 of them? He said, oh God, if you will forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you've written. Kill me, Lord, not them. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, that's not the Lamb's book of life that we read about in the New Testament. That's the book that has the names of all Christians in it. This is the book of life. This is the book of physical life. When someone died, their name got erased from the book. And that's what God is saying here. But I want you to see again the heart-rending emotional power in the life, in the heart of this man Moses. God, please forgive them. But if not, Take me instead. Does it remind you of our Lord Jesus Christ who on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In the garden of Gethsemane, he had said, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The Lord Jesus actually did go to the cross, suffer, bleed, and die for the sins of the whole world. He was not spared so that you and I 
to, could be forgiven of our sins and enjoy eternal life forever with our wonderful, merciful Father who is a great and mighty God. God gets angry about idolatry. God responds to fervent prayer. But then thirdly, we've only got a few moments left. I want you to listen carefully now. Number three, sin always brings consequences. Sin always brings consequences. Look with me now, starting at verse 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. Verse 16, now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. No, Moses said, it's not the noise of shout of victory nor of defeat, but the cry of singing, I hear. So it was as soon as they came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, that is, they rose up to play and all the other that went with it. So Moses' anger became hot as he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He broke the tablets because the people had broken the commandments. They had already violated these commandments that God had given, and so the tablets were broken as a symbolic gesture of what they had been doing. Then he took the calf, which they made, burned it in the fire, melt, uh, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. When Moses tells about this later on in Deuteronomy chapter 9, he says that he put it in a flowing water, so that the people had to get the water and drink it. They drank that gold that they thought was worthy of their worship. Moses said to Aaron, also in that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 9, it says that God was so mad at Aaron, he wanted to kill him. What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron says, do not let the anger of my Lord, that is, he's, he's addressing Moses here, uh, become hot. You know, the people have set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. Now that's totally believable, isn't it? Of course not. Aaron realizes he's caught. But instead of owning up to it and admitting his sin, he blames other people and other things. He blames the people. You know this people. They're evil. He lied. He certainly did. He also blamed the fire. He said, I threw this into the fire and this calf just came out. Moses, brother, it ain't my fault. It's all these other things that caused it to happen. Verse 25, now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. 
And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put on his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. If there's one thing that this passage, particularly this part of this passage, should teach us is that sin brings death. For the wages of sin is death. Which in that verse in Romans 3 speaks of spiritual death forever. But there are always consequences to sin. Even if we as believers are forgiven of our sin because we've done something to someone else or we've done something uh, that will require circumstances or will require rather consequences. You may be forgiven of your sin, but it doesn't necessarily relieve the consequences. Dr. Rogers used to say, you can choose, you can make your choices, but you cannot choose the consequences of your choices. Whatever we do, there may be blessings that come, from it, or there may be judgments and undesired consequences. But one way or another, sin always brings consequences. And can you imagine these 3,000 men of the sons of Levi having strapped a sword on their side, going from tent to tent, finding, in some cases, their own brother, their neighbor, their friend, who had engaged in this idolatrous and immoral worship. And they put them to death by the edge of the sword. Their own fellow Israelites. I just can't imagine what impact that surely made on the entire Israelite people but also on those Levites who were the instruments of God to bring judgment upon the people of God who had sinned. And now, let's look at verse 29. Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man has opposed his son and his brother. They were blessed of God for obeying him by bringing God's judgment. And then Moses prays again, and we read that a moment ago. But notice down in verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment upon them, for, uh, excuse me, when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. 
So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. There were 3,000 men who died that day, but there were others who died as a result of the plague that God sent among the people. But there is, even in this, a note of hope. Notice in the middle of verse 34, Behold, my angel shall go before you. In other words, God is not abandoning his people. He's going to continue to be with them. But they must take sin seriously and they must walk in his ways, obeying him, seeking him, serving him, and loving him. Oh, yes, we're all sinners. We all deserve the judgment of God. But I'm grateful, aren't you, for the magnificent grace and love and mercy of the God of heaven who knows our frame. He remembers that we are only dust and he loves us and he sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sin. What a great and wonderful and merciful God and Father we love and we serve.